This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Welcome back to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're back to podcasting after a bit of a break, and the break actually bore much fruit. We have a new e-zine called What Else? Sparks and Wiry Cries. So thanks for coming back to listen and for looking at our site, checking things out. We're very proud of the collection of articles that have been submitted, the blog entries, the calendar listings, you name it. There's room for everybody, so send us your materials and we'd love to include your ideas too. This month's podcast is a feature on the song, What Sparks and Wiry Cries, which of course was our inspiration for the title of our e-zine and the podcast. This is a song by Ned Roram. In fact, we have a recording here that is features Ned Roram at the piano playing his song, and the singer is none other than Phyllis Curtin, the soprano who premiered so many contemporary American songs. Why don't we have a listen to that before we start our discussion? I love this performance. I especially love the flinty quality that Phyllis Curtin brings to this piece. I feel like she has especially driven home the words here. This these, this poem obviously inspired us in in the creation of the podcast and the easing. Erica, can you talk a little bit about uh, 
how we came to this. I think the imagery in Paul Goodman's words of the sparks and the wiry cries striking upon an iron string, all of those words already conjure a lot of images that are common to, say, playing the piano or singing, expressing ideas. Um, Scurl of glee. I think that we all experience a lot of glee when it comes to singing songs. There's a line also later in the poem, O brilliant more than fire is the song of the heart, undivided by hope or fear. And this is another great gift of performing song repertoire, or even just listening to it, is that you enter into a world of uh, imagination and some kind of a safety net, a protection against the pains of the world where you're free to speak your mind without judgment. And at least I'm speaking very personally, of course, this is how I feel about performing song. Um, but that some of those images captured, uh, I guess, a, an underlying passion in me that spoke to why I do this in the first place. I how about you, Martha? Yeah, I totally agree. I think, I, I mean, I think we think very much along the same lines with this song. And what I find interesting is that if you read the poem on itself, in fact, what we have... Uh, implied uh, with our title of the easing is in fact I think not at all what Paul Goodman originally intended. I, th I think uh, Taylor Storr in his article this month really talks about what poet Paul Goodman was going through in his love life and what the poem actually means. It's certainly not about song in general but I love that we can take that and, and use it to our advantage in yeah. that way. Yeah. We had the distinct pleasure to visit Mr. Warham on January 11th of 2012 in his Manhattan apartment. Ned Warham has fascinating stories to tell, and we'll let him tell those stories in his own words. Just a quick note before we go into Mr. Warham's interview. This interview was a little bit disjunct, as Mr. Warham is in his late 80s and sometimes lost track of the direction of his thoughts. We have put together a version that we think preserves the integrity of what he was saying he has a vast resource of his own thoughts and words in his published diaries, available online at Amazon and many other retailers. Here, then, is Mr. Roram on composing song, choosing poetry, and the man he often described as my Goethe, my Blake, and my Apollinaire, poet Paul Goodman. Well, I don't talk much about inspiration. I don't know quite what inspiration means. Uh, it's a sort of a layperson's notion about what artists are and the city out in the moonlight and so forth. Uh, writing music is hard work, and it takes technique and knowledge, and you either got it or you ain't. And uh, Paul Goodman was a friend of mine. He's the first real, when I was really very young, adolescent, and uh, he was a very big influence on me in many ways. People, a lot of poets, for example, they're always rather pleased and honored that you set their music, but they never get, quite get the point. I mean, they, they, they feel they've said what needs to be said, and why do it twice? Why make a song out of it? Today, I, would, I might choose another poet, something about, but I've probably set 85 different poets to music in my, or, or different, not poets, different writers, because I've done a lot of prose, especially in opera. But uh, I set to music what attracts me, because if you stop to think about there's something kind of silly about getting up and singing a lot of words rather than speaking them. And so I have to find something that I think, not that I'm necessarily going to improve on the text, but I will change 
the sense of the text by the by the sound of the either the female or the male voice. We have to use something we, as composers. I'm not a singer at all, and I was never especially interested in the human voice per se, but I was always interested in in poetry per se, and I also am a writer myself, and so, which is rather un-American because Americans are specialized and Europeans are general practitioners. However, I'm a uh, composer who also happens to write rather than a writer who happens to compose. I also flatter myself that my taste in verse is pretty high class, if I were able to write, and people say, why don't you set your own words to music? I, I actually did, had done that when I was much younger, but if I were able to write poetry that was good enough for me to set to music, I wouldn't need to set to music. It, it would be its own outlet, its own satisfactory form. Next, we will hear Mr. Gorham speak a little more on his past with Paul Goodman. Well, he was very bisexual, and... Uh, but he, I think he thought that, I think he was more attracted toward men than toward women, but I also think that he felt that people should get married and they should have children, and uh, so he did. He's written a lot of political, non-poetry, but his prose and so forth, I've, I think off my top of my head, I have, have it all here. But he was a real writer in Chicago, which is what I knew him in my teens, and there was a whole bunch of, a group on the, at the University of Chicago that got together weekly and did poetry things, and Edward Roditi was one of them, and Paul, and others, and uh, that's such a long time ago. But he was, uh, because he wrote uh, complex prose things too, but, not, but, but, but thank God that's not the way it is with music, with, it, with the poems. Mr. Warham then spoke about his expectations of singers singing his music, the text, and also interpretation. I'm not interested in the voice or in singing except what they're singing. I'm interested in, if a singer is singing songs of mine, I'm less interested in the beauty of voice than in his or her ability to enunciate. And I think diction is the most important thing of all. To sing the notes and sing the words and make them comprehensible and I've done I've done the interpretation. It, it shouldn't be just nobody with no voice getting up and singing the the notes. But uh, interpretation can be very corny and very embarrassing. But a song is not the same as an as an aria either. And uh, an aria, the singer is uh, is another person, quite literally interpreting a role on stage and physically in costume. But a song, uh, I mean, you can sing. 12 different songs in an hour on a program by 12 different poets. And uh, so it's the music that counts. And diction, as I always say, diction is the most important thing. Get the words over, and it's more, it's, uh, that's all that counts, or almost all. Lastly, we asked Mr. Roram about some of his teachers, composer Rosario Scalero at the Curtis Institute of Music, composer Virgil Thompson in New York City, and Nadia Boulanger during his travels in France. Here's what he had to say about all three of them. I didn't particularly care for my uh, teacher, Curtis Scalero. Manati and Barber had both had him, but they were a lot younger when they had him than I was, and I had some ideas of my own. But he was a reactionary old bastard. I, I, I really didn't like him. But uh, since I had a scholarship at Curtis, and my father was impressed with that, but then I left after a year and came to New York and worked as a uh, copyist for Virgil Thompson. 
who is arguably the most articulate verbally person in, in music, and I would be copying his music in the dining room, and he would be on the telephone dictating to his uh, secretary, Judith, Ju- Julia Haynes, I think her name was, uh, his next Sunday column, so I would listen to all of that. So I was on the inside. But when I went, I went to see Nadia, and she was very good to me, and she also gave me money, which, which counts. And she gave me what was called the Lily Boulanger Award in the, in the name of her dead younger sister, yeah. whom she doted on, and who was a composer but died when she was 20, something like that. So, and I sat in on some of Nadia's classes, but, not, but she said, you don't need me. It is not often that you get the chance to speak with a composer of such renown. We are so fortunate to have spoken with Mr. Roram. It was an absolute honor. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for listening to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We are your hosts, Erica Switzer and Martha Goof. And thanks, as always, to our producer of Furious Joy, Matthew Principe. We're going to leave you with another performance of Ned Roram, Phyllis Curtin, performing What Sparks and Wiry Cries. Thank mm-hmm. you.